Hey, everybody, you are listening to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast, where we will be tackling real financial issues so women can eliminate fear and take charge of their lives. I am your host, Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. So let's get to it. If you are thinking about getting coverage of any kind and you're dragging your feet, you're as young as you'll ever be today probably as healthy as you'll ever be today. Every type of insurance we talked about today requires medical underwriting, and the best time to do it is today. If you drag your feet and you don't look at it, you don't consider it, don't make a decision, that can be a really big mistake. Risk mitigation is about avoiding the big mistakes. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Today, I am super excited about my guest because not only is she an expert in her field, but she is also a colleague of mine at the Bonson Group. I love working with Sarah Leitsky because she's awesome and super knowledgeable and professional. Always makes me look look good to my clients. <laughs> so I especially appreciate her for that. Um, and she knows a, a whole bunch of stuff that a lot of people really, I think, find either confusing or not sure how it all fits in. So Sarah is the Director of Risk Management at the Bonson Group, and she has, uh, her expertise is in insurance and risk mitigation, and she is responsible for helping people kind of harness and limit their liability in all kinds of unforeseen and foreseen circumstances. She is a director and she is the mother of a 10-month-old baby girl. I think she's 10 months old. And she is right now in Minnesota Mm -hmm. and she's in our Minnesota office where I actually think they have better weather than we we have here now in Southern California. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I like all of my guests to explain to our audience, you know, Mm -hmm. Who are they and how did you come to be a director at the Bonson Group specializing in risk management? What was your mm-hmm. journey? Well, uh, I will tell you it is was not linear, which I think is a lot of people's story. <laughs> um, <laughs> definitely mine. I, uh, yeah. yeah, right? It's never a linear path. I actually went to college twice, which may or may not have been a good decision. First round, I got a degree in political science and communications. And then I decided to go back for a music degree because I wanted to be extra practical. And um, what, wait, what was your music specialization? Just the study of music or an instrument? I majored in voice. So my oh. voice is my primary instrument. And I also play piano. I used to, a long time ago, play the saxophone and the flute. Oh, so, that's you awesome. Know. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it's kind I, of Wait fun. a minute, guys. I'm learning stuff now. <laughs> I should have had Sarah do a concert for us today instead oh, of talking boy. about risk management. You know, my baby gets a concert every day whether she wants one or not. So, <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite song to sing to her? Oh, gosh. Oh, well, I have about 10 of them. Right now, I'm singing, do you know that song, Count Your Blessings from White Christmas? Oh, yeah. It's like so sweet. It could make you cry. I sing that to her like every day. (laughs) Oh, you are so cute. Oh, thanks. My heart is so full. (laughs) I did not take singing lessons, and I do have a terrible voice. Although my middle daughter did take voice. Two of my daughters took voice lessons for Mm. a very long time because we have a lot of singers in this family. But Mm. I used to sing. My eldest daughter has brown eyes, and when she was a tiny little baby— I also I always used to sing Van Morrison's Brown Eyed yes, Girl to her. And I at her that wedding that was just recent, you know, we mm-hmm. kind of highlighted that song. So there you go. Maybe oh, that's in fun. Twenty some years you might be singing Count Your Blessings oh. at the wedding of your little daughter. I hope she invites me to sing. She might be like, I've heard enough of you, mother, but thank you. <laughs> Oh, wow. But anyway. Okay, we digress. How amazing. I had no idea you were, you know, like a a musical star. Okay. (laughs) Not a star, but, you know, I actually started teaching lessons afterwards. I was teaching some voice lessons in piano. I hated it. So I quickly pivoted and I was like, I needed to just get a job. 
And so I found myself doing insurance operations for an insurance agency downtown Minneapolis. I really enjoyed the industry, which shocked me. I thought I was just getting a job to like pay the bills. And then I was like, actually, this is pretty interesting. And then I got connected with some of the people in our Minnesota office, Stoddard, Phil, Michelle, and they were a separate group before we were the Bonson group. Yes. And I basically convinced them that they needed to hire me because I liked them so much. <laughs> and they, I like your style, Sarah. <laughs> you know, I'm nothing if not assertive. <laughs> exactly Which why is, I like this woman. She is a real fiscal <laughs> feminist. She is part of the sisterhood. Oh, yeah. Amen. So I convinced them that they should hire me. And I was doing investment operations and insurance operations and they were very generous to give me the opportunity to decide, do I want to stay in an operations type role or do I want to be more client facing? Do I want to work into being an advisor someday? And I took that path because I really enjoy people. I like connecting with people. So I went and got my CFP. That was a long journey. And that's a certified financial planning designation yes. for those in the audience. Yes. Thank you. Clarification. There's so many acronyms in this business. It's I know. ridiculous. So I did that. And then we joined the Bonson Group. And our group here has a lot of history in the insurance world, a lot of expertise. So it was kind of natural for us to, kind of, to pick that up when we became part of the Bonson Group Phil Barnhill was the director before I was, and he mentored me into the role. And I mean, he's the best mentor. He and Stoddard are like amazing mentors, cheerleaders, and, you know, helped me get to my role as a director. So there's a couple of really good things I want to highlight here because, you know, you listen, you guys are listening to my podcast. You know, we talk about all sorts of issues. Uh, and one of those issues is the mentoring of women in the workplace mm-hmm. by our male counterparts. And I think it's awesome that both Phil and Stoddard have done that and, and mentored you into a directorship because you are exceedingly competent and uh, very thorough. Thank I always you. love working with Sarah because I know she is going to lay the table completely for my clients and there's mm-hmm. going to be um, a robust presentation. And so, you know, I love that within our our orbit here at the Bonson Group, you know, we're we're having mentoring women by our male counterparts who have succeeded in the areas that we need to be mentored in, because that's the only way that we get more and more women involved in all of the world and, you know, climbing up that corporate ladder, because we have so many anachronistic, you know, things that are in our head from just the history of where women's places were, you know, from the 1800s and Mm -hmm. before that, you know, we couldn't even own property. So, we kind of live in a, in a professional world that was created by men for men for many years. And having participation from our male counterparts to help us along the way is so, so important. So thank yes. you, Phil and Stoddard. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> for Sarah being uh, director <laughs> of risk management. And I should add, Michelle also has been a wonderful mentor to me too. She's part of the group, part of the, the Barnhill clan as well. And Women mentoring women is also just ah. crucial because some women are not great at that. Do not do that. They yeah. don't do that. And it that boggles my mind. But Michelle is it's called also the queen, just, queen bee syndrome, where yes. I think a lot of women think that there's just this, this they don't think about abundance and they think, yeah. well, there aren't going to be that many roles for women. So I don't want to help because I don't want to displace myself. Yeah. And that's crazy. I mean, that's just just we want to get to an even playing field where there's enough women, women and men together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we are still behind in the pay scale as far as gender parity goes with pay. We're still 82 cents on the dollar for the most part. It's going to take 135 years for us to level the playing field. That's an actual fact. And if we as women don't help each other, then mm-hmm. this is all for naught, you know? Exactly. So we, we got to do it. And so, We were really lucky at the Bonson Group to come upon your group and to be able to incorporate them into our practice. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons that I 
am always so happy that that you guys exist now as part of the Bonson Group <laughs> is that, you know, when you think of financial advisory work, a lot of people just think of portfolio management. And our practice is a very holistic practice. We are very driven by financial planning and also assessing the risk management of the client. You know, what should we be doing to manage their risk in various uh, different elements of their lives? And then also estate planning making sure that all of their resources are set up to be passed along in a way that they want in the most tax efficient way. And also if they have some charitable inclinations, the best way to accomplish that. So that is really what, when you're going to an advisory practice, you want this holistic approach, right? Mm -hmm. Someone just managing a portfolio, that's just a, that's, that's just a part of your financial life and a part of building your net worth. And it's not the main part. It's, it's an mm -hmm. equal part with these other parts. So when we uh, had you guys get incorporated into the Bonson Group, it gave us a group of people that are very specialized in risk management. And it really allows us to deliver a much better service to our clients. So Sarah, can you please tell the audience in layman's terms, what exactly is risk management and what is all the hullabaloo about? Why am I banging on about why this is so important? <laughs> sure. Well, you know, I think some people think, especially when we're younger, we think, you know, I set up my emergency account, I'm investing, I'm saving money, I'm good. But we need to plan for other risks because there are a lot of risks in our lives that an emergency account just won't, it won't cut it. If you need to change jobs and you're maybe going without a job for a few months, your emergency account is probably going to get you there. But if you have suffered an injury that puts you out of work for a long time, if you have an illness that puts you out of work for a long time, your health insurance probably isn't going to cut it because, you know, they're not going to pay you to not have a job. So. Correct. Then you turn to different types of insurance. So maybe you need to buy some disability insurance to insure your income because your most important asset is your income. It's that cash flow coming to you every month because that's how you're investing. That's how you're saving your money. So you need to insure that part of your life. Now, let me ask you a quick question on that point because a lot of people who work will have their benefits, you know, and they'll get the health insurance and then they'll get offered some sort of disability insurance, I think, in their package. Yep. And then maybe some sort of minimal life insurance, depending on the role they play. So should people as a norm be thinking about disability insurance over and above what they're getting through their work, if they're able to get um, some minimal amount through their work program? Yeah, I, I think it should at least be considered. I tell everybody, whatever they're giving you for free, take it. And then beyond that, you know, we probably need to do a little analysis. Generally, when you're looking at a long-term disability policy that you're provided at work, they're going to insure 60% of your salary up to a given amount. So let's say $10,000 a month. That's a pretty typical number. When you receive that benefit, that 60%, if you go on claim, you're getting 60% of your salary, it's taxable to you. So really, it's going to be a lesser amount uh, than, you know, 60% of your gross salary because you're going to have to pay tax on that. Right. So at that point, it might not be sufficient. It'll be something which will be helpful. But if you experience a disability probably your expenses are going to be higher. So you're going to be making, taking in less money every month. And you're also probably going to be spending more money. Most disability claims are due to an illness and not an injury. So something that lasts a little longer. Is there an average like length of time that disability insurance covers? Is it a couple of years or is it only a year? Or can you decide that in the type of policy you get? You decide that in the type of policy that you get. So you can choose like a five or 10 year benefit period. I really try to steer people away from that because you can get it out to age 65 or age 67. Usually they companies will have both options. And if you're young, I mean, if you get hit by a bus tomorrow, 
10 years might not cut it for you. You might need that disability all the way until you're retired or until you're 65 or 67. Uh, Another thing about group coverage is it doesn't follow you. So if you leave your job, you don't have that group benefit anymore. You'll have your new group benefits, which might look similar, but they might not or they might not offer it. So having a supplemental policy you can have forever is beneficial to you. And when you pay for a supplemental policy like that, you go out into the marketplace, you're buying a disability policy for yourself when you start receiving a benefit, that benefit is not taxable to you. So right. on the one side, your group your group is going to be, the supplemental won't be taxable to you, which, is, which can be nice. You pay for it with after-tax dollars, but... Dollars, and then you get tax-free distributions. Exactly. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today. What is a disability? What is What encompasses that word? So it depends on the policy. If you're talking about Social Security benefits for disability, that is a high hurdle to get over to be totally disabled. You have to be able to not work anywhere to be able to get that kind of disability coverage paid out to you. For the group policy, it's usually not as high a hurdle, but it's still a pretty pretty high hurdle. You have to be not working, really not able to do any kind of job. Sometimes the definition is a little easier to meet than the social security, but not usually. And then if you're getting a supplemental policy, they'll define disability for you in the policy and it can be a much easier hurdle. One of the quintessential examples is a surgeon. So you can get a rider on a policy. It's called own occupation. So you're insuring your own occupation. If you're a surgeon and you break your finger and you can't do surgery anymore, that would be a disability that puts you out of working in your occupation and you could get a claim. Now, some industries, you're not going to add a rider like that. Like my policy doesn't have own occupation but it'll be a little easier to reach. And maybe, and there's usually a, an additional feature where if you lose 20% of your income because you can't work as much, you can get part of your benefit. So you could still work kind of part-time or less than and get the benefit. And is yes. that benefit, I'm a little bit, because honestly, guys, this insurance is confusing to me as well, which is why, thank God, I have Sarah to help me with it. Um, (laughs) So could I, so say I'm just disability, I have this disability now in perpetuity for the rest of my life. It will pay me that forever? It'll pay based on whatever the parameters in your policy say. So if it's 265, you'll be paid out till you're 65. If it's 10 years, then you only get 10 years, which really would stink if you are young and you experience a disability early into the policy, only having 10 years might not, might not cut it. So at 65, you kind of assume people are going to start thinking about retiring and they'll get their social security. And can they then segue into disability through social security or is that just too high a hurdle for many people? It's a pretty high hurdle. You might be able to do that. Once you reach retirement, there is nothing really to insure anymore because you don't have any income. You have no more income, right? Yeah. Yeah. So when people retire, if they retire before 65, they just drop the policy because you wouldn't ever be able to 
justify a claim. Although, I mean, at this juncture, more and more people are working till they're much older than 65. So yes, they are. It's a whole other <laughs> kind of window of time. Okay. So disability insurance is clearly an important thing to consider. Yeah. And that is cut. You're working. You're no longer able to work as much as you, you can or at all because something's happened. Mm-hmm. Does this cover things like ailments? Like say I get, you know, I'm sick and I've been diagnosed with something pretty bad and I'm not able to work for ever or for a while. Mm-hmm. Is that encompassed in the disability description? Yeah, and I I think most people who go on claim eventually go back to work. So Mm -hmm. it's typically not, you know, I'm going to be disabled and not able to work for the rest of my life. People will experience an illness that will take them out of work for a period of time. While they're getting treatment. Yeah, Yeah. while you're getting treatment, getting better. Or if it's an injury for whatever time it takes to rehabilitate. Uh, So that's generally how it will work. Yeah. I think this is something that a lot of people don't really talk about and also Mm -hmm. get confused about or don't know about. I know like when you get these options with your benefits package every year, you know, this is your health insurance and do you want group life and all this. I kind of look at this and say, okay, uh, yes, I guess I do. But you're right. You know, a lot of people don't even have emergency funds or if they do, they're really underfunded. Yeah. Um, So in a way, you know, this is kind of super important if you haven't been able to save enough for the emergency fund. I mean, this is not just belt and suspenders. This is actually kind of an important element, the disability, because any of us can get hit by a car tomorrow or mm-hmm. get, you know, I don't know, a trip over something and bang our head. I don't know. There's so many yeah. possibilities. It's amazing that anybody lives to be a hundred. I know. But I think that we don't talk a lot about this kind of stuff. So for everyone in the audience, think about disability insurance. What are the, and I know it depends on the policy and the person and all this stuff, but mm-hmm. what are like, what would a average premium for disability insurance policy be? Is it, is it prohibitively expensive or? I would say it's not prohibitively expensive and you don't have to get the most coverage that's, that an insurance company will offer you. You can generally, if somebody is coming to me or, you know, an advisor at the Bonson group has a client that needs disability, I'm going to show them the Cadillac policy where, It has all the bells and whistles. And then we tweak it back from there. And I would say 99% of the time we make some changes and bring it back because there can be a little bit of sticker shock with the premiums. And it's going to be more expensive than like term life insurance coverage. We can talk more about that in a second. But it's going to be more expensive than that. But also, it might be more important, especially if you have a family, more important to your family to have solid disability coverage just to protect your income in case something happens. So let me ask you a question. I am a 64-year-old woman who's probably Mm going to work for another 10 years. So you guys can do the math. (laughs) Be coming in with my cane. (laughs) Not really. (laughs) I plan to still be running 10, 5Ks, not 10Ks, when I'm 75. Yes. So say I want to get a disability insurance policy now. So I'm, I'm older but I'm still working. Is that something possible for someone like myself? Because I am still earning money and I, you know, Mm -hmm. if I were not to work, it would be not good for me and the people that rely on me. Am I an eligible candidate? Generally, that's going to be a lot harder because most policies, the farthest they'll insure you out is 65 or 67. You probably, you might be able to get a 10-year or five-year benefit though. It'll be more expensive because part of the pricing is dependent on your age, but you could probably look at something that's like a 10 or 10 or five year benefit. It's important to at least, or worth it to at least look and just see what's out there. I mean, I'm surprised because, you know, when you look at like how they're pushing out the RMD, the required minimum distributions Mm -hmm. for 401ks and IRAs, they're now at 73. For some people, it's going to be 75. Mm -hmm. This seems a little bit backwards because most people are still going to be working. A lot of people are still going to be working at 65. So I'm surprised that that's now still the number. But um, 
even if you're someone like me, I mean, I think you should look into it because mm. it may only be for a five or 10 year window, but at least if you're still working, you obviously, if you're not just working because you really want to work and don't want to be retired, but you, you know, you're still trying to gather your resources um, for retirement, I do think this is an important thing to think about and look mm-hmm. into. Certainly very important if you're a younger person and you've got people relying on you. And yeah. even if you only have yourself relying on you, you know, you yeah. should really think about this. Yes. Okay. So that's disability insurance. Tell me more on the menu of risk management. Yeah. You know, most of these conversations have to start at a place that's not very fun. In disability, we're talking about, you know, what if you get really sick or what if you get injured and you can't work? One of the other conversations that you really need to think about, even though it's really scary and it stinks, is what if I die? What happens if I die to the people around me, the people I care about, uh, to the rest of my assets? Generally, people will be, you know, be pretty good about putting a beneficiary on things like your IRA, your 401k. Maybe you have a plan for your taxable accounts or you have a will. Life insurance is another thing to think about. Like for me, I think I'm fairly young. I have a 10-month-old. Compared to me, you're definitely (laughs) fairly young. (laughs) Yes. But, you know, I have a family. You're like a teenager compared to me. (laughs) There you go. Thank you. Um, I have a mortgage. That's a big debt obligation in my family. There's my income. And I'm also planning to work probably till who knows when. Maybe I'll be doing this when I am walking in with a cane, too. We'll see. But if I died, that would be really hard on my family. We're a two-income family. So we buy life insurance to insure against that risk, to make sure that if something happens to me, my husband could pay off the mortgage if he wanted to. He could take some time and regroup. He could, you know, quit his job for a while. Help care for the your your child. Yes, continue to pay daycare that second mortgage we have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, and there's a lot of different ways you can approach life insurance. Generally, for someone in a situation like mine, where you you really just need the life insurance, you're going to go to term insurance. So that is pure insurance, you're just paying for the death benefit. There are no extra cash values or anything. It's not, an, it's not like an investment of sorts, like a whole life or a universal. Yep. You're just getting term insurance. And I think those premiums are, are probably less than oh, yes. the other types. Yep. And I know when my children were young, we had a term insurance policy and then pay our mortgage off, make sure that, you know, if something were to happen to my ex-husband, because at the time he was the primary breadwinner, mm-hmm. you know, we would still have a house and I would get help with the kids and, you know, yep. try to re- re- recuperate our our mindset. But so term insurance is for younger people. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to add to this, like people who do have children and you definitely should get some term insurance because it's, it's super important. Yeah. The other thing I do want to mention, uh, just as a kind of an aside, is if you have children under the age of 18, you will want to name a guardian in your will. Oh, yes. Because if you don't do that, the state will decide if for some reason both parents were to die suddenly, uh, the state would then decide who becomes the guardian for the children. No one would really want that to happen. Yeah. And one other thing to say is, you can't put that in a trust. It has to be in a will. So yeah. even if you have a trust, you need to have a will when your children are under the age of 18 to name a guardian. It's a little bit of a side from risk management, but since we're on the topic of things that could happen to you when you have children and you're still you know, younger, that's yeah. something I think everyone needs to keep in their heads when they're doing their estate planning. So, okay. So term insurance, why would anyone get a whole life or another type of policy? Yeah, that's a great question. So when you're talking about something like term insurance, you are insuring a definite period of time. So for me, I have 30 year term insurance policy. Uh, That's going to cover me for, you know, I think almost 20 more years. That'll get my daughter into college almost, no, that she'll be in college by then. I hope she doesn't get held back a few times. Um, <laughs> but that's a definite period of time. After that, I might not need quite as much or I could get some more. 
There are other times where we are looking to ensure an indefinite period of time. That gets more into like estate planning for estate tax purposes. Now, the federal exclusions right now are very high. And so a lot of people aren't really butting against this. But on the state level, you might, like in Minnesota, there's a $3 million exclusion that mm-hmm. isn't portable between spouses. You can't share it like you can on the federal side. Right. So if there's an estate tax liability, you might need to cover that for the rest of your life. You want to buy something now that isn't going to change in price that will ensure that indefinite time period. When you're buying something that is permanent insurance, there's also going to be a cash accumulation value attached to that. In some cases, like where we're looking at just a death benefit, we want this for the death benefit. The cash accumulation is kind of neither here nor there. We're going to look for the, the policy that gives us the best death benefits for the smallest amount of premium that will get us all the way out past life expectancy. We can go the other direction. You can structure a policy that's exactly turned on its head. You're getting the smallest amount of death benefit for the biggest amount of premium. When you're doing that, it's not as much about managing the risk associated with death. There might be a different strategy there. You can do that. I would say if we're talking policy specific, and you'll hear a million different things, especially if you try to Google about life insurance. Right. If we're talking about whole life, I think most of those policies are trying to do both of those things, uh, which ends up making it pretty expensive. Right. So I'm not a huge fan of whole life insurance. There are other types of insurance that are a little more flexible that we we do like. Some are connected to market performance. Some are not. It's a case-by-case decision. And I would say if somebody is interested in permanent life insurance, they should talk to somebody who works with an insurance broker. Like at the Bonson Group, we work with an insurance broker. I'm not just working for one insurance agency with one set of products. Right. Right. That can be a little sticky because they just have limited offerings. Let's just take a beat here because, again, insurance is very confusing for most yes. human beings. <laughs> yes. What's the difference between an insurance broker and an insurance agent? Like, why? what's a broker going to give me that a guy who's an agent or, you know, a one product guy, one company yeah. guy going to do? Tell me the difference between that because I think... That's really important for people to understand when they're when they're trying to explore these uh, life insurance issues. Yeah, yeah, and I want to be careful not to be too judgmental, maybe. <laughs> but okay. I think somebody who is we are working, a judgmental show. Well, there you go. <laughs> if <laughs> we you say ca- what we mean, oh, well, okay, there we go. If you're working with somebody who is only working at one insurance company and they just have those products to work with. I don't like that situation because it's like, oh, what is that phrase? Every, if you only sell hammers, then every problem is a nail. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good one. So, you know, there's only, there are limited tools there. Sometimes they can also work with a broker, but they're, they can be hesitant to do so because they might not get paid as well. If you work with a broker, on the other hand, They have access to basically any insurance company under the sun, or they they should have access to any insurance company under the sun. So as a more concrete example, when somebody comes to me, and let's just talk about term insurance for a second, and they say, I need term insurance, but I have this health condition, and I'm not sure where to go. Then I can go talk to an underwriter and say, which insurance company out of these hundred insurance companies is going to think about this most favorably? And then we can go there. Or we can look at policy, uh, different policies might work better for different situations and we can, you know, pick from a variety and really figure out what's the best in the marketplace rather than what's the best at the one company I work for. 
So it's kind of like any kind of broker, right? Like a mortgage yeah, broker, totally. insurance broker. You're going to have a menu of options because they're, they're going to be getting like bids from different kinds of options out there for you. So totally. when you're thinking about this and you're trying to do it and incorporate it into your financial planning, make sure you speak with a, a broker because that's yeah. going to give you the most amount of uh, the menu that you want of various selections. Mm-hmm. Okay, so got my disability insurance. Mm-hmm. I've got my term life insurance, although mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe I have my disability insurance because I'm old, but assuming I was <laughs> in my 40s, I have my disability insurance and I've got my term insurance. I'm probably going to pass on the permanent insurance just because I don't want to incur the cost of the premiums right now. And I'd rather put my investable money somewhere else sure. because I'm an investment advisor at the Bonson Group. And I think that's a better choice. <laughs> and what else should I be thinking about besides those two things? Well, I think those are a major step forward. The other, there's kind of three big types of insurance that I'm dealing with with our clients. We've hit on two of those, disability, life insurance, The other is long-term care insurance. And let me tell you, this part of the industry takes the most demystifying because I I think it can be the most confusing for people. And I'm I'm having so many conversations about long-term care insurance just so people can understand, get the lay of the land and kind of figure out where to go. So let me ask you a question because I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and I wasn't, I said what I thought was accurate, but I I honestly don't know for sure. When is it appropriate to get long-term care insurance? Mm -hmm. Should somebody in their 40s be thinking about getting it? Or should you be waiting till you're in your 50s or 60s? When is the best time? Because obviously with all insurance, I'm assuming the older you get, the more expensive it becomes. But I don't know how that translates into long-term care. But I also know if I'm 40 or 30 and I've got little kids and I'm trying to worry about term insurance and maybe disability insurance and I've got all the other stuff I'm paying for, you know, nannies or childcare and a million other things, maybe I don't want to pay, buy a long-term care policy right now because um, I'm still young and that seems a million years away. So is there a, a best age to buy long-term care policies? And then we're going to explain what those are. But that's my first question. Yeah. I think as a general rule, people should start thinking about it when they're 50. Before that, most people won't need to think about it and probably shouldn't pay for it. I will say there is one exception. If there is family health history of most of the people in your family have needed significant long-term care it might be worth it to look into it a little earlier. And in that case, you know, I might recommend a different type of coverage than to somebody who's maybe 50 looking at retirement is close to retirement. So like if you, if someone has like also early dementia or early Alzheimer's in their family, I mean, yeah. this is something to consider uh, yeah. because your care could go on for a very long time. Um, yes. If you're, you don't have all your faculties or you don't, you know, Uh, you're not able to do anything for yourself. And again, in layman's terms, can you explain to people what is a long-term care policy? And then there's been quite an evolution in this field over the years. So I know that the long-term care policies of yesteryear are not the same as today. And I remember from a long time ago, they were really expensive and they only covered a certain period of time. And so if you needed longer than that period of time, you were kind of screwed. I think I have that right. And also if you didn't use it, it was just, you just paid premiums on a bunch of nothing because you never used it. So you kind of lost it, so to speak. So it was a use it or lose it. So first of all, tell us what it is and then maybe give us a little history of the evolution of policies as to where they were and where they are today and -hmm. what the options are. So long-term care insurance covers long-term care needs. So there are a couple ways that you would trigger your benefit to start being paid to you. There's really two main ways. One is you cannot complete two of the six activities of daily living. They're called ADLs. Mm -hmm. So if, for instance, you get to a point later in life where you can no longer dress yourself or bathe yourself, That's two of the activities of daily living. 
you would be eligible to start receiving your benefit then because you might need to pay for an aide to come to your house to help you with those things. So care can start in the home. It's not just like nursing home care. There's a broad spectrum of, of things that this type of insurance covers. And nowadays, I think a lot of people are using their long-term care insurance to pay for in-home care. Yes. You know, so for example, as you know, my parents are very elderly. They are in their home. They're 92 and 94. And, you know, my mom has dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, they do not have a long-term care policy. And God knows I wish they did. And one thing I want to accentuate here is this is really important. And why is it important? Because we're all living a lot longer than we used to. So when I was 40 and my parents were 60, my grandparents died in their 60s. So we didn't really think about the fact that my mom and dad might live to be 100. I mean, it just, no one was thinking about that, right? I didn't think about it. They didn't think about it. We didn't talk about it. I tell everyone today and in my writings, in my podcasting, in my practice, if you're 40 and your parents are in their 60s or 70s, you need to be talking to them about what their long-term care plans are yes. because they may live a long time and then they may be turning to you when your kids are in college or you yourself are older and you may need to help them and it may not be a really good time for you financially to have to devote resources to your elderly parents to care for them because they didn't have any backup. They maybe didn't save enough or whatever. Now, in my case, my parents did, they were very good savers and investors. Um, But the reality is, is if um, we're getting to the point now with this, that if they live more than say five years, we're going to run out of money and I'm going to, I'm going to have to subsidize even more than I do right now. So I can't express how important this conversation is, not only for yourself, but for your parents. So because your parents, if you are a kind and loving daughter or son, their care is going to influence your finances and the finances of your family if it hasn't been prepared for. So this is a super, super important topic. And my parents are getting maybe, I just decreased it because we were needing more care because my mom had fractured her hip. So at one point, Mm -hmm. you know, we were having almost, uh, I think we were up to maybe well, at one point we were having 24-hour care. But bringing it now, we're now at about, I believe, 12 hours a day. But, you know, it's $150,000 a year in their home. Not cheap. So this is not makeup stuff and ways mm-hmm. to, you know, make money on insurance. Now, all mm-hmm. long-term care policies are not the same, so you have to do your due diligence. But just want to accentuate how important they are. So, Sarah, tell us how much are they? What are they? What did they used to be? Because there are some people that are, holding on to older policies, which actually some of them are pretty good because they have inflation riders in them that aren't as expensive as if you were to buy that today and explain what I'm even talking about by saying an inflation rider. So um, <laughs> tell us the, all we need to know about this long-term care. Sure. So let's start off, I guess, with the history a little bit. Like you mentioned earlier, a lot of the older policies are use it or lose it policies. So they're a lot like the term insurance we were talking about before. You pay your premiums every year. If you never use it, then there isn't anything you get at the end. Those policies, when they were priced initially by actuaries, they really underestimated the claims that these insurance companies are going to be paying out in the future. And so now they're paying out big time in long-term care claims because, you know, contractually they're obligated to. And so what's happening is people who hold these contracts are getting premium increase letters almost every year. And honestly, I've seen premium increases anywhere from 15% to, I'm not kidding, 200%. Oh my God. Yes. And it's just really frustrating for people. The good thing is it's generally really good coverage. So the structure of a policy like that is they'll tell you what your daily or monthly benefit is. So maybe it's $500 a day or something. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. You would be eligible to get that amount every day. Different contracts pay out a little differently, um, so you would research that a little bit. Usually there's a 90-day waiting period, so you would be experiencing your long-term care event for 90 days, and then you start to get paid out. 
usually home health care is an exclusion. You can usually get that on day one. Mm -hmm. There's also a benefit period. And you mentioned this earlier too. Most contracts are not unlimited. You're limited to maybe four years of your benefit. I think, you know, three to five years is what I'm seeing most often in older policies as a benefit period. Although every once in a while I do run across a policy that has an unlimited benefit period. And I tell people, hold on to that if you can. (laughs) If you can pay the premium, hold on to it. And uh, many of them also have an inflation rider. So if you start off at that 500 a day or whatever your daily monthly benefit is, if there's an inflation rider, that benefit's going to continue to increase every year. They can be compound or they can be simple. So if you have, let's do 100 so I can do the math in my head, $100 daily benefit. If you have a 5% simple inflation rider, you're going to get an additional $5, 5% of 100 every year added to your monthly, your daily benefit. If it's 5% compound, you're going to get an additional $5 after one year, and then you get an additional 5% of 105 So that just compounds out a lot faster. They're more expensive because the benefit increases a lot. So when you and I were talking about my long-term care, there was the possibility of, uh, I think it was 7500 a month, something mm-hmm. like that, um, with no inflation rider. Then there is the one with the inflation rider. Let's just yep. use the simple one. But there was a big differential in the premium. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, so just for illustrative purposes, if we could give them like, so the 7,500 a month without the inflation was, the premium mm. was around X and the one with the rider was around Y. And then it really, that comes down to cash flow needs. You know, what can I afford? Can I afford the one that's more expensive? And can I afford the one uh, or just in the interest of my budget and what I can afford, do I get the one without the inflation? But there is a differential there. But my, my, mm-hmm. I guess what I'm saying here is if push comes to shove and you can't do the inflation one, get the basic one because yeah. you need to have something. So just yeah. if you know the numbers ballpark, what, what was the differences? Well, I think, first of all, it's always – prudent to evaluate a policy that has an inflation rider against one that does not have an inflation rider because they can be really expensive. And if you're younger, an inflation rider makes a heck of a lot of sense. So if somebody is 50 or even younger, you just have a a longer runway. And so you're going to want the inflation rider. As you get into your 60s or so, the inflation rider gets pretty expensive. So I do have an example here because I want to quote semi-accurate numbers. <laughs> so let's just say you have a $5,000 monthly benefit. You might look at, let's call it an $8,000 premium. Right. That's going to sound expensive. That policy has an unlimited benefit. We'll talk about how that works in a second. So that means you're going to get the $5,000 for as long as you need it until you pop your clogs. Exactly. Yep. There isn't like a three, five-year window where you would get your benefit and then yeah, it's like over. Five, you you take got it. it for five years and you're still hanging around yeah. and it's like, that's it. No more benefit for yeah. you. You're, you're going to the <laughs> nope. state home now. You get it until you are ready to leave this planet. To, to move on to greener pastures. <laughs> greener pastures. So let's just call it $8,000 a year. If you just add an inflation rider, this is a 3% inflation rider, simple inflation rider, that might jump up to almost $11,000 a year. And if you instead just boost up that monthly benefit to $7,500 a month, so from $5,000 to $7,500, you're going to pay almost $12,000. So 11,000 versus 12,000 and you already start out at a higher yeah. benefit with a 3% inflation rider that's going to take you like 20 years to get to the 7500 that's a long time so in that kind of circumstance and that quote was run for somebody in their 60s in that sort of circumstance it might not make sense to add the inflation rider for somebody younger 
it yeah, might make you have sense. longer term d- time to deal with inflation. But yeah. if you're a little long in the tooth like I am, then you can probably <laughs> forget that and just care about the longevity, which should be yeah. until you die, of the policy. Because like we d- discussed, I did not expect, and you know, knock on wood, but I, I did not expect that my parents would, would still be alive. Yeah. And honestly... I do not think that it's outrageous to think they may both live to 100. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you a quick question. If there are a husband and a wife or a partnership, a couple that is married, do they get a benefit? Is it just two premiums equal to two singles together? Or Mm. is there some sort of combined benefit for a couple? It makes more sense in 90% of cases to get a joint policy either because the insurance company offers you a discount for doing that or because how it's structured, it's just cheaper to have a policy that insures both people. So if it's possible and both people are healthy, I'm always running a quote on a joint policy. I'll show them individually if they want to, but two individual policies at the same level is not going to just be half of what a joint policy would be. It'll be more than half. Okay. So there is benefits from, if you're a couple, yes. uh, to get it as a, as a couple. Yep. Um, that way, and you know, who knows, one person might use it and the other person may not use it. it, it you don't know as you go, get older. I mean, the thing for me with my parents is my mom, when I looked at facilities, which I'm not going to do unless I absolutely have to because they've lived in their house for 64 years and I'm not taking them out of there. My mom would have to have been put in memory care and my dad mm. would not. And I didn't want to put him in memory care because he doesn't need all that lockdown stuff. And I don't want to split them because they've been married 70 years. They have no concept of what life is without the other. So that was not a good option for me. Whereas in the home care, you know, we can, most of the attention is going to my mom, but also my father's getting, you know, all of his daily things helped with the medication, the eating, the dressing, showering, whatever. So as a couple, just keep in mind that there are policies for joint, you know, for couples and they're going to be more cost effective. Yep. Okay. So let's in our, we have a little bit more time left. So what should we be looking and asking our insurance person about long-term care? Because there's a mm. lot of solicitation about long-term mm. care out in the market. You get stuff in the mail when you get to be a certain age, AARP, people talk about it. But I mean, there's a, I kind of feel with insurance, there's a lot of possibilities for scamming and not getting the real deal. So what should people be asking and really looking at when they're doing their due diligence with this stuff? Yeah. Well, I still think working with a broker makes a lot of sense. If you're just getting solicited by somebody through the mail, I might be a little more hesitant on that because, I mean, people take advantage of people after, well, of everybody, but of people after a certain age. age, Yes, that's that's a real, real danger. I will say too, you know, we talked about how insurance, long-term care insurance got really expensive because they were not taking into account how many, how much these insurance companies would pay out in benefits. So it got really expensive. The insurance industry had to pivot and figure out how to cover the need in a slightly different way. So most of the time now, a long-term care policy is going to be working hand in hand with a life insurance policy. They're not all created equal. Some will be like a rider on a life insurance policy where you're really leaning into the life insurance and adding a long-term care insurance rider. Those can be pretty expensive. They're good for the right person. That would be like, you know, a younger a younger person who maybe has some family history and they, mm-hmm. they also need the death benefit. I probably would mm-hmm. move in that direction. There's also something called asset-based long-term care. That's kind of leaning in the, more in the direction of long-term care, but there is also a death benefit. So that's good for you because if you never use it, there's a death benefit for your beneficiaries. So my it's, heirs would get it. Yeah. So yeah. It's nothing huge, but it's not nothing. But it's something. It's something, yeah. right? It's not like you just paid all these premiums 
you didn't use it. And then the thing just goes up in smoke and nobody gets anything. So you, so try to find one that has, you know, make sure you find one that has a death benefit. I think they're called hybrid policies, Mm -hmm. maybe so that, you know, it's not just a use it or lose it type situation. And then also discuss inflation riders and the different types of inflation riders and then ask someone to show you different options, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're, if they're a broker, they should be able to show you, hey, company A gives you this, company B gives you that, company C, and then you can compare them. So you have an idea of what's out there. You know, don't just be, uh, don't let your eyes glaze over because it's long-term care insurance and you're just like, I want to get this done and I'll do anything. Do not do that. Okay. Yeah. This is a, you know, you're going to be paying a premium and this could be how you're going to get taken care of when you don't know the time of day. So, you know, (laughs) put a little thought into this, guys. I mean, it's important. Yes, yes. And I know, you know, one of my grandparents has a long-term care policy. He has squeezed every penny out of that that he can. And I know that my dad and his siblings are grateful for that. I know my parents have long-term care insurance. I'm extremely grateful for that. It's a real benefit, not just to you, but to your family. It just relieves a little bit of stress. Most of the time, people aren't going to be trying to cover 100% of the long-term journey that they have. But if you can get a baseline where you know, you know, I for sure have at least $60,000 a year I can use for this coverage, then that makes a difference. This is so important, and I talk about it a lot, and I'm going to continue to talk about it. I was just interviewed mm-hmm. for another podcast about uh, the whole long-term care topic. And we were talking mm-hmm. about these um, living facilities that you move into that, you know, kind of morph from, you know, like a vacation home, <laughs> like <laughs> they're, you know, like assisted living, but then they're not assisted living, but they're like these 55 and over communities. I think they're called, uh, what are they called? CC. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) continuing care retirement communities. And some Mm -hmm. of those are very expensive and they do have upfront fees that some of them aren't refundable. So that's Mm -hmm. this whole whole world you need to be super careful with. But with respect to risk management, I think we covered some really good topics today. So to summarize, you know, you need to figure out whether or not you need disability insurance. And the short answer is if you work and you have anybody depending on you, and even if you depend on yourself, you probably should get a supplemental policy and look into that. If you are alive and have any sort of people depending on you, you should probably get a term policy, especially if you have children and you're in your 30s or 40s. You know, this is going to protect your family, pay your mortgage off, make sure there's some care for the children if one spouse or one partner is no longer with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's long term care that you need to be talking to your parents about if they're elderly. And yourself, if you want to make sure that in your old age, because, you know, especially for women, women are living statistically five years longer than their male counterparts. Many of them, uh, by the time they are at a certain age, they've either experienced a divorce or the death of a spouse, or they just never got married. And so they are kind of having to take care of themselves. And even if you have children, sometimes the children are busy, they may live a far away. So long-term care is really important for everyone. Yes, these premiums might be a little high, but honestly, the best gift you can give your kids and yourself is in the, maybe instead of taking a really you know expensive vacation, take a less expensive vacation and put some money towards long-term care. Mm. So Sarah, I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us about this because again, most people, when you say insurance of any type, Literally, they would rather go get a tooth extracted than talk about it. So, no joke. No joke. You're an awesome lady. Uh, but, you know, people just are like, oh, my God, I, I just don't have the headspace to think about it. I'm telling everybody, stop, you know, saying that. This isn't that mm-hmm. difficult to understand. But it is really, really important because it can really mm-hmm. mess up your life if you don't have all these things in place. Is there anything else that you would say to people that you would recommend is like the most important thing if they could do anything in the risk mm-hmm. management situation? You know, what, what advice would you give them, whether it's in securing it or what mm-hmm. they should get first or premiums? I don't know. Any words of insurance wisdom yeah. that we need to know from you? Well, I'll, I'll say this. If you are thinking about getting coverage of any kind, 
and you're dragging your feet, which I have done <laughs> and I need to snap myself done. out of, yeah. you're as young as you'll ever be today, probably as healthy as you'll ever be today. And all of this, every type of insurance we talked about today requires medical underwriting. And yes. the best time to do it is today. Even if you think you're going to lose a f- 20 pounds in the next year, you may not, <laughs> or it may take a while. It's important to secure the coverage. I am actually going to steal this from Phil. I've heard Phil Barnhill, he, I've heard him say this a number of times to clients. It's better to make a small mistake than a big mistake. If you buy a little too much term insurance, that's a pretty small mistake and probably okay for your family. If you drag your feet and you don't look at it, you don't consider it, don't make a decision, that can be a really big mistake. Risk mitigation is about avoiding the big mistakes. Yeah. You you don't want to, once something happens, it's too late, and then you're dead and your heirs and everybody else is in a real pickle and could really add to not only mourning the loss of a loved one, but Mm. really living in, you know, complete mayhem because finances are all over the place. I know for sure that you've inspired me to get my act together. Um, (laughs) As everyone in the audience might know, you know, I'm still in my rebuilding stage since my Armageddon Mm -hmm. and trying to, you know, keep saving for retirement since I only, I had to recreate myself 10 years ago and build up my other accounts and keep out of debt and all the things I tell you guys that you need to do. And I need, you know, I've been talking to Sarah about long-term care and I got to pull the plug because I'm not getting any younger and we've explored the options and I'm ready to, you know, get this done because I got to check that off my list of becoming more financially organized. And, and, you know, she's right. Today is the best day of your life to make the change. Also, it's never too late. Don't feel overwhelmed if right now you're listening to this and you're 68 and you're like, oh my God. I mean, I think you can still get long-term care. It may be a little bit more expensive, but it is something like always explore your options. You're never, it's never too late and it's never too soon. So thank you so much, Sarah, for your time today. I think Mm -hmm. it's been awesome. And I hope that the audience leaves knowing more about insurance and and ready to like attack it. You know, like, go figure this <laughs> Exactly, yes. Sarah Leitsky yes. has inspired me. Well, thank you to Kimberly. And I will say, because I want to give your audience a peek behind the curtain, because I think they mostly know you for doing this. There is nobody on the planet that loves their clients more than Kimberly Davis loves her clients. And I get to see that in meetings. And it's so fun. The first like 10 minutes is always catching up. Kimberly knows everything about her clients. So (laughs) you see her working hard in this way. She is stellar with clients. And I just, I think everyone should know that. Oh, Sarah, I love you for saying that. Thank you. I do love my job. And I, honestly, I do thank God every day because I was really up against it and, you know, mm. divine intervention or the universe, whatever you want to call it, you know, this, this profession, I got an interview at Morgan Stanley, which started this whole profession for me because I was applying for everything under the sun and it was the best mix of all my skills. But what I love about it mm. and what I think I love more than when I was a lawyer, cause I was a corporate lawyer. So I wasn't really dealing with humans. I was dealing with underwriters <laughs> and institutions is that I love dealing with people because we all are the same. We all have yeah. issues and families and things that we worry about. And I want to help everyone accomplish their goals and like what they're trying to achieve with their money because money is a means to an end. It's not an end in itself. And I want them to be able to to live their best life with what the resources they have. And God knows I'm trying to do that for myself. So it is a delightful experience for me to have these people that I get to interface with every day. But thank you, Sarah, for that. I mean, that makes my heart very happy because (laughs) I hope I'm doing a good job. I think I'm doing a good job, but you never really know, right? (laughs) I got a really nice uh, email from a client today who Mm. I had met with yesterday. And it was just, it just made my heart so happy because when you get that kind of feedback, you're like, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, this is right. We're doing, we're doing good work here. So yes. anyway, everyone at the Bonson group is awesome. And Sarah is the consummate professional. So oh, I am, thank you. I, I just think the best move, one of the best moves that uh, 
we at the Bonson Group made was uh, expanding to Minnesota. So, <laughs> well, I now, think so too. <laughs> and I'm going to come to Minnesota because I don't think I've ever been to Minnesota. So, well, come, wanna, we'll, we'll show you a good time. And I want to come when it's super cold because I want to know what that feels like. All right, you said it. <laughs> yeah, you want me to do it? All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, we appreciate yeah. your time. Thanks, guys, for listening. And until next time. Thank you for listening today to the Fiscal Feminist Podcast. Please take a minute to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. And I would really appreciate if you could also rate and review it. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at The Fiscal Feminist or check out the website FiscalFeminist.com. Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.